In today's climate, diversification is key for new farmers. And selling hide, which refers to the skins of large animals like cattle and other small stock, could add to your profit margin. In this edition, we share a guide on how to make money from hides in Mzanzi. Water is a scarce resource, and how we manage it, conserve it, and efficiently use it will ultimately determine how long we have access to it. We're back with our Netifim campaign, and this week, agronomist Shal van Renen unpacks why our responsibility to irrigate with efficiency is so vital. Chube Matabo is an agricultural economist by trade, but she always knew she wanted to farm. Today, she wears the crown as our hashtag soil sister. She is one of the extraordinary women selected for the Koteva Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. And our farmer tip of the week comes from plant scientist Henry John Basson. This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 137 of Farmers Inside Track. I'm your host, Dawn Umdu. We kick off with a promise guide to make money from hides in Mzanzi. Nicole Ludolf chats to Dr. Clive Jackson-Moss, founder of the International School of Training and Technology. Over to you, Nicole. Thank you so much, Dawn. Dr. Jackson-Moss, what are some of the elements involved in processing bovine or cattle hides? The cost involved in the machinery is just astronomical. Even just a relatively small tannery would be costing 10 to 20 million rand, and that's a tiny tannery. We've got some really big tanneries in South Africa. Capital replacement costs there would easily be 100 to 150 million plus. This is the major sort of limiting factor in terms of establishing a tannery. To establish a tannery, there is an awful amount of equipment. There is one relatively small tanning drum manufacturer in Velcom in the Free State. But most big tanneries import their tanning drums. All tanning and processing takes place, generally speaking, in drums, mainly made from wood, although some of the newer drums are also made from polypropylene plastics. But generally wood, they're all imported. The machinery is all imported. A lot of it comes in from Italy. Italy is the world leader in terms of tanning machinery production. And obviously, this equipment comes in at a huge cost. And the only way that it justifies you spending such a high cost on your machinery would be to produce big volumes. And so tanneries tend to be big businesses. They consume a lot of water. They consume a lot of electricity. They make use of a lot of chemicals. It's very much an industry. It's not something that's easily done on a farm or in a rural setting. It's not to say that, you know, one couldn't process, uh, you know, hair on goat skin or in a small hair on game skin in a rural setting. How are hides preserved? The big tanneries essentially source their hides from abattoirs. It could be directly from the abattoir or through an intermediary hides and skins broker. So you do have certain hides and skins brokers who will go around and collect all the hides from the various abattoirs, be they bigger abattoirs or smaller abattoirs. And they often then take them to a sort of a storage facility where they would salt them. Most hides are salted, normal salt preserve them. If they're not salted, the hides can rot very quickly. Or if not preserved with salt, they would be processed immediately. But in that case, normally the tannery is situated you know, right next door to the abattoir. Some tanneries that are situated, say, right next door to an abattoir, those hides might be produced today. In other words, the animals may be slaughtered today, but the tannery wouldn't perhaps necessarily be able to process them until tomorrow. So in other words, then they might be kept overnight in a refrigeration 
that would result in not being necessary to salt the hides because salt does create some pollution problems as well in your tannery effluents and wastewaters. Refrigeration does play a small role in cattle hide processing in some of your exotics like in the ostrich industry. It's more important. It's a very valuable skin that they're dealing with. And so they tend to salt the ostrich skins and refrigerate in order to ensure that there's just absolutely no chance that bacteria could actually damage those skins. In your opinion, should farmers consider selling hides to tanneries directly as a value-added product? It all depends on the quality. You see, at the larger abattoirs, the carcass and the skin are separated through quite professional ways. Mostly big abattoirs have pneumatic knives with a round blade on them and they have you know, probably quite skilled and trained staff who will remove that skin from the animal. On farms and in smaller areas, that is not really done that well, possibly because people doing it haven't been trained or don't really understand the importance of not cutting holes in the skin with the knives. So That is why most tanneries prefer to buy hides from bigger abattoirs or bigger hides and skins brokers because they're the quality hides. They've been stored correctly, they've been salted correctly, but most importantly, as I said, they haven't been cut full of holes. And so that is essentially one of the big differences from buying hides from a local farmer. It is possible, and there are some tanneries that do buy from local guys, quite a mixed bag in terms of quality. Some of them have removed that skin properly from the animal and others have cut it full of holes. So the big tanneries, obviously, they're trying to produce a consistent, higher-quality product that leaves their tannery, and so they prefer to buy better-quality hides, preferably from the abattoir directly or from you know your hides and skins broker, but at least they sort of know what they're buying. They generally don't buy a lot from smaller farmers, just purely on the basis of quality, really. What are the quality requirements tanneries look for in the cattle hides they source? Most tanneries, when they receive hides, they will inspect them. And one of the first things they're going to inspect for is holes. So if there are holes in the hides, they would probably reject them. And secondly, they look for any bacterial damage or any rotting damage. And the initial telltale signs of any bacterial or rotting damage to hides would be initially a smell, a bit of a rotting smell, and also something that we call hair slip. Now, hair slip is when you pull on the hair on the actual hide and if it comes away, slips easily, in other words, you can actually pull it out quite easily, that's an indication that your preservation or your curing with the salt wasn't done correctly. From the time the animal was slaughtered to the time the skin was actually salted, there could have been a delay then or it could just simply be that perhaps insufficient salt was actually applied to the skin. Very often those are two checks that are carried out at a tannery before they would begin any processing whatsoever. And finally, why are there not more tanneries in the country? South Africans in general don't use a lot of leather. I mean, yes, we have leather footwear and there is some leather in terms of furniture upholstery and also the automotive upholstery, leather that ends up in motor car seats. But a large proportion of what is processed or semi-processed in South Africa is exported. And there are various reasons for that. And maybe I should just explain that when you make leather, you could essentially divide your leather making process into three stages. And the one is the conversion of your raw hide into what we call wet blue. Now, wet blue, it has this sort of grayish, bluish sort of color to it, but it itself is not leather. It's just the animal skin has had the hair removed and it's been tanned to ensure that it doesn't rot. But wet blue is actually an internationally traded commodity. And so South African wet blue is exported all over the world. Some of it is obviously processed locally in South Africa. The better quality stuff goes into automotive upholstery. 
Obviously, the South African wet glue also gets turned into shoe upper leather, which is then bought by your footwear companies to make leather shoes in this country. But also a large quantity of our hides and skins are exported in sort of a semi-processed form, much of it in this what we call this wet blue state. And if you're going to export anything, be it the wet blue, or we also export quantities of automotive upholstery leather or even shoe leather, some that might be exported, most countries that you're exporting to would require some sort of certification. That would be a certificate of analysis of the leather, which that it meets sort of international laboratory standards. So many of the tanneries have their own on-site laboratories to actually test that leather to ensure that it actually meets those international standards. And then many of the tanneries belong to sort of international certification bodies. And these bodies ensure that the leather is being made in a sustainable way, that leather is not being made in a highly polluting environment. And so it takes into account many, many sort of environmental and social aspects of the business. And that's becoming increasingly important that if you want to be involved in the export market and you want to send your leather overseas to various customers, many of those customers are demanding those sort of certificates. And so it is putting a lot of pressure on the tanneries locally to come up to scratch and to ensure that they meet those sort of international certification bodies' requirements. Thanks, Nicole, and great having you here on Farmers Inside Track. Dr. Clive Jackson-Moss, founder of the International School of Training and Technology. Now, you may know this, but water is a scarce resource, and how we manage it, conserve it, and efficiently use it will ultimately determine how long we have access to it. This week, we're joined by Netifam agronomist, Shal van Rinnen, who unpacks why our responsibility to irrigate with efficiency is so vital. Shal, welcome to Farmers Inside Track. It's great to have you with us. It's so amazing to be meeting everyone on the Netifam team, and you're with me this week. Now, before we get into today's discussion, maybe just a little bit about yourself, where your journey in agriculture started. You're an agronomist, and I'm so happy to have you with us. Hi, Dawn. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be joining you today, and it's exciting to be a part of agriculture and To give you a quick summary, my journey started as a kid. I used to stay in the city and I had a big passion for agriculture as my aunt and uncle used to farm. I made a point of it to go and visit them every holiday just to be a part of that. I always had a passion for agriculture and everything related to it. As you mentioned, I'm agronomist for Nedafim in the Western Cape and also in the Eastern Cape. We try to find solutions for producers with regards to irrigation. Thanks so much for being here. I think it's so amazing as part of what we do at Food for Mzanzi is also just to say to people that just because you don't live in an agricultural community doesn't mean that you don't have to be connected to it. So it's so amazing that that's part of your story as well. Now, today we're focusing on our responsibility when it comes to irrigate with efficiency. Water is a scarce resource and how we manage it, conserve it and efficiently use it will ultimately determine how long we have access to it. Why is this so vital to grasp, especially when it comes to food production, not only in South Africa, but globally, Shal? Dawn, I'd like to say, let's put it all into perspective. If we look at it, 69% of global available water goes into agriculture, and 80% of available agricultural land isn't irrigated at all. Of this 20% arable land that is irrigated, a massive 77% is irrigated inefficiently. When I refer to something being irrigated as inefficiently, I'm I'm referring to flood irrigation, etc., etc. 16% of this water is used and applied through sprinklers, and the mere 7% is used with micro-irrigation. 
micro-irrigation, obviously referring then to drip irrigation or micro-sprinklers. It's a scary thought if you consider that the estimate is that in 2050, we will have 25% less water than we actually need and about 20% less edible land available. It's our own responsibility to make sure that we utilize water as efficiently as possible. I'm hoping to also familiarize myself and the listeners of this podcast with all the terms and references you are making to the types of irrigation available, but more to zoom in on our conversation for today. Let's narrow it down from Zanzi's farmers. Is there a difference when it comes to scale and taking responsibility for water use? Yes, of course. I believe big changes happen with small beginnings. A variety of irrigation methods exist, each with a different level of efficiency and different advantages and disadvantages. Precision irrigation methods can ensure that the maximum is gained from every drop of water used in agriculture, supporting the industry in its effort to use water with more purpose and efficiency. There's no one-size-fits-all approach here. Every scenario needs to be investigated holistically and plans drawn up accordingly. Michelle, what's your take on Mzanzi's food producers shifting their thinking to incorporate more sustainable farming practices to mitigate the risk of climate change and rising input costs? What's the potential to improve results in the field and profitability? As a farmer, you have no control over climate and price-related risks. By reducing input costs through efficient irrigation and nutrigation and other sustainable farming practices, the grower can however limit the impact of these threats. Precision irrigation can improve the average crop's productivity by as much as 50%. It can improve the fertilizer use efficiency by as much as 30%. And it can even reduce energy consumption by as much as 35%. This all adds up. That sounds like you've really done the math and figured it out perfectly for farmers. And I think you've also shared a clear idea of what farmers should be doing. But could you elaborate more on the steps farmers can take for efficient irrigation? Get irrigation specialists and professionals involved. Nedafim has a wide network of technical advisors and agronomists spread across South Africa to assist in every step of the way. Water use efficiency and nutrient use efficiency are terms that were seldomly mentioned a few years ago. Now it's such an integral part of efficiency. We must aim to feed the plant and not the soil. Thus, irrigation scheduling becomes an integral part of the system. No over or under irrigation. Under irrigation puts the crops under stress. Over irrigation causes leaching of water and nutrients to the subsoil, which leads to nutrient wastage and pollution of our soils. That's really interesting. Now, for those not yet convinced, again, why is it crucial that we irrigate with massive efficiency to ensure that we have the resources to farm and produce food for the next 50 to 100 years? To me, modern farming is about using the latest technology and farming more efficiently. A modern approach is about making more efficient use of resources. Producers must use water, fertilizer, and other inputs efficiently to maximize the benefit per unit of input. The irrigation industry and agricultural industry is operating in an extremely complex context, and it is crucial to consider the full picture in every irrigation decision and recommendation. An irrigation system which has been properly designed Considering the dynamic agricultural context, challenges and goals of the farm will enable efficient management of the multi-dimensional biological system to ensure successful and sustainable farming. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Netifam agronomist Shal van Renen. Chube Matabo wears the crown for our hashtag Soil Sister campaign this week. Although she's an agricultural economist by trade, she always knew that she wanted to farm. And now she's one of the dynamic women selected for the Cortevo Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. This is a year-long blended development program at the Gordon Institute of Business Science Entrepreneurship Development Academy.
Chuba, you have a pretty impressive agricultural background. Tell us about your farming journey. Where did it all start for you? I am originally from Limpopo province. I grew up there. I studied there. I studied agriculture at University of Pretoria and I specialized, well, my honors degree at University of Pretoria in agricultural economics. Ever since I completed my studies, I have been employed for the past 17 years in corporate, worked in financial institution and mainly worked with farmers. And I must say that I knew when I completed my first degree that one day I am going to go and farm and I will not farm with crop, I will farm with livestock. I didn't know exactly which livestock, but I knew that I loved working with animals. Something that has been burning me for all these years that I was in corporate, but obviously you, there are other things that happened, marriage, children, but something just was always at the back of my mind that you have to go into farming. And if you have been working for so many years, you get comfortable, you get used to so many benefits, the salary and all those kind of things. So it has not been an easy decision for me to say, I'm going to finally, I'm quitting my career. Took a lot of motivation, courage, and just self-talk, self-motivation to say you can do this. Saving. I think I started saving to start this business five, six years ago. And I knew that I didn't want to start with a loan initially. I wanted to put money aside to start. And that's what I did. The very same reason that I have started, I think it gives me fulfillment that it was not easy. Still not easy, but the fact that I have started and I started with what I had, the little that I had, gives me assurance that I can keep on working. Now, I know from my interactions with farmers on this podcast, there's never an easy way to get started. What are some of the challenges that you've had to face and some of the factors that motivate you to keep going? So this decision to go into farming didn't start in 2020. It started prior to that, that I've been saving. And then in 2020, when COVID obviously closed us in, I already bought the fence for the farm, the post and everything, but I just had not had enough guts or time to say, let's go and start putting this fence and everything up. And my husband also, I mean, we were all here, we closed off, but farming was the only one that was open. So that's when we start with the fencing, start preparing the land and all those kind of things, buying bricks to construct the houses and all those kind of things. Where I am currently operating from, it's not our farm because there was a guy who was selling his production then and he was selling together with the property that we could lease. So we saw it as an opportunity to buy the livestock there and to grow while in the meantime, while we will be developing our own property. So we prepare the land and all those kind of things, the fencing and then, but we also took the money that we had and bought this operation or the pigs or the livestock from this guy that didn't want to farm anymore. And we are still stationed at his property but month to month, we are buying building equipment because we don't have funding at the moment. The challenge that I'm currently facing is the fact that, yes, we have started trading. When we started, we were not selling, right? Remember, with animals, you have to breed, grow to the certain age before you get to the market. Before we could sell, we were funding everything on our own. So the workers' salaries, the animal feed, electricity, and the rent. And then only, I think, from August last year when we started selling, 
we are not funding all the expenses. 80% of the expenses are now funded by the business. But the main challenge is if I tell you how much I pay on rent and electricity, and I'm thinking if I were using that money towards the loan to repay the structure at my farm, because at this farm of ours, we have put solar energy, so we will be off the grid. We will not be using electricity. So that's going to save us a lot of money. And if we were to get a loan to construct our houses at our farm, we will use that money, say the rental amount, toward the repayment of the loan for the asset that belongs to us. Now tell us how you give back to your community through your farm and the work that you do within the agricultural sector. For now, I think the only employing the people that we employ in terms of creating employment. In future, when I grow and when I'm comfortable and I think I'm well established, I would like to share the knowledge and encourage other people, especially women and youth, to go into farming and, and share my skills. Because I think Pigari is a very easy business to run. As long as you understand, we get production from one animal twice per year. So you just need to know how to manage it, follow the drive by securities, the compliance, and also collaborate with other farmers. It's very important as new entrants to collaborate with other farmers in learning, in making it in this industry. But that is something that I will do to offer lessons or mentorship skills to young people that are willing or aspiring to be in farming. Currently, we have students that come to our farm for their learnership programs. And then before we let you go, what's your advice for young women who aspire to farm? It must be something that you are passionate about. You mustn't go in because you see a lot of people here on Instagram posting their pictures. Farming is very difficult. It requires patience and resilience. It requires self-motivation, but most importantly, require that you love what you do. If you love what you do and you want to grow and you want to be an example to other young people, you need to self-motivate yourself. It's going to be tough, but if you are determined, if you keep on working, if you keep on doing what you say you will do, if you are disciplined and you network, you don't just sit and say, things will come, we will make it. You have to love what you do. You have to be sure that farming is what you want to do. Otherwise, you are going to quit very easy. Thanks so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Jube Matabo, she wears the crown as our hashtag soil sister this week. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring. And that's an ideal worth preserving. When your family doesn't settle for anything less than magnificence, give them the best with Magnificent Maize Meal. On the field or in the classroom, Magnificent helps your family perform magnificently. Magnificent is a product of VKB Group. Visit vkb.co.za or like our Facebook page for more. VKB, for the love of the land. Now, agriculture is not just about getting your hands and boots dirty. And this week, Farmer Tip comes from plant scientist Henry John Basson, who echoes that sentiment exactly. There's a movement called precision farming. What we as scientists and the companies that provide the seed and everything, we are trying to get more out of one hectare. Let's say a farmer is planting only 100 hectares or you only have a farm that's 100 hectares. We are thinking of, listen, how can we improve this crop so it can adapt to the environment better? And how can this farmer get more out of just this 100 hectares that he's planting? 
especially we're not just thinking about the farmer, but we are thinking about the population. Because as you guys know, the environment, it's changing. It's more difficult to plant. It's less rain, more heat. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to precision that in a way of, listen, how can we improve this cultivar so that the farmer can get more out of his land and more into his pocket to contribute to society because population is unfortunately growing. And this is the way from a science point of view, how we think about it is how can we help you from a different point of view. And our farmer tip from plant scientist Henry John Basson brings us to the end of another exciting episode of Farmers Inside Track. Remember, if you loved this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members, and don't forget your fellow farmers. And be sure to check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From me, Don Numdu, Nicole Ludolf, our producer, Megan van der Vent, and the rest of the Food from Zanzi team, have a great week. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Form Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.